Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, everybody who has been rating and reviewing the show. As we promised, we are going to name right now our favorite review of the last month, and it comes to us courtesy of Ramon Trejo one two three four five, who says. Five stars, slay one of the most entertaining podcasts ever. I've laughed, cried, been educated, thoroughly, fully entertained. Highly recommend this podcast. I'd love to be a guest one day. Literally a slay the house down boots, Charlie XCX. Woo. Ah. Ramon, great review, substantive. You really made me laugh. I even, I think, posted that on Instagram somewhere. So please, if you're listening to this, DM Pop Pantheon's Instagram and we will set up a delivery of your Pop Pantheon niche legend dad hat. Keep rating and reviewing. Every month we'll pick our fave and we're sending out a free niche legend dad hat to our fave reviewer of the month. Also, don't forget that if you want to just cop a niche legend dad hat, go to poppantheonpod.com in our merch store and you can get that there. Follow us on social at poppantheonpod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-E. V. Last thing, my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is happening a week from tomorrow night, February 10th, at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. And this month's installment, because it's occurring on Super Bowl weekend, is a Rihanna night. Yes, I will be playing pretty much every single Rihanna song in existence that I can think of. It's going to be Rihanna and Rihanna Extended Universe and Friends as the musical vibe. This party is open to queers and our allies. So if you're a queer, if you're a friend of the queers and you love pop music, this is a party for you. Tickets are moving extremely fast though. So I recommend getting them ASAP through the link in the show notes of this episode or in my bios on social media. And a reminder that if you are a Pop Pantheon All Access Patreon subscriber at the Icon tier, you have access to the guest list at this party and can get in for free. The way to redeem that is to DM us on Patreon. We are not taking DMs on Instagram or any other forum. Patreon DMs, you can get on the guest list plus one if you are a Patreon Icon subscriber. All right, let's get into this week's episode which is about one of the most enigmatic and enthralling pop figures of the modern era, The Weeknd, who is really someone that embodies many of the ideals of contemporary pop, which have included rising to fame kind of meteorically on the internet and breaking down genre barriers between R&B, hip-hop, pop, and everything else, but also does so by nodding very directly and cleverly at styles of the past, whether that be new wave, whether that be two-step, whether that be synth pop, electro pop, et cetera, et cetera. So a real musical omnivore that also has a very defined aesthetic world and someone who is really interesting both in terms of the music they create and how they have weaponized or utilized pop stardom with the unique tools presented by the internet. So, without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, The Weeknd. Yeah. 
The weekend born Abel McConan Tesfaye is at once the most unlikely and most obvious pop star of his generation. On the one hand, this is a man who, for the first few years of his meteoric, largely online rise, refused to even show his face, rendering his signature combo of celestial falsetto and louche on record persona as a disembodied figment of technology. Not exactly the stuff of omnipresent brick and mortar pop stardom. At the same time though, his melting of R&B, hip hop, and pop genre boundaries, ability to balance a true sense of danger with shimmering melodic instincts, and his cinematic, often deeply troubling exploration of the Bacchanalian excesses of modern society makes him the ideal pop antihero for a moment defined by them. And it's this tension between the glistening centrist and the button-pushing introvert that defines The Weeknd's music, singular pop persona, and what's made him one of the most enigmatic icons of the 21st century. Abel Tesfaye was born in Toronto in 1990 and raised by his mother, an Ethiopian immigrant, and his grandmother in Scarborough, Ontario. At age 17, Tesfaye dropped out of high school and moved in with friends, a precarious period of his life in which he experienced homelessness, experimented with drugs, and was briefly incarcerated. In his early 20s, Tesfaye began releasing music on YouTube under the monikers The Noise and Kincane, and crafting an air of mystery around his earliest recordings by maintaining complete anonymity. He dropped his first trio of striking, genre-obliterating songs under the moniker The Weeknd, What You Need, Loft Music, and The Morning in 2010, each of which showcased his sweet Jacksonian falsetto paired with an almost disturbing fixation on the seedy underbelly of nightlife debauchery, namely rampant drug use and sex with alluring yet cold-hearted women, against dark and dense production, courtesy of a tight-knit crew which included definitional Weeknd collaborators Doc McKinney and Il Angelo. These songs quickly became viral sensations, permeating the then highly influential music blogosphere, catching the attention of hometown hero Drake, as well as influential music pubs, the New York Times and Pitchfork, and eventually gave way to a trio of critically beloved mixtapes, House of Balloons, Thursday, and Echoes of Silence, all released in 2011 and repackaged as a compilation called Trilogy in 2012, the official first single of which, the oozing, aching, wicked games, became The Weeknd's first charting hit in both Canada and the United States. So tell me you love me. This early music made The Weeknd one of the early 2010s most innovative fixations, both musically and in terms of how the internet could create superstars overnight. It also positioned him amongst a cadre of emergent pop figures, which also included Frank Ocean and Drake himself, who were redefining the contours of R&B and hip-hop music for an internet generation with expansive tastes that could range from rap to European dance music to Top 40 to indie rock. But the central question surrounding The Weeknd remained whether this insular digital creature could take his aesthetic widescreen or whether he even wanted to. After performing his first live shows, a big feature on Drake's beloved sophomore album Take Care, and signing with Republic Records, 
who offered to distribute the record label he founded with his managers XO under their umbrella. The Weeknd released his first proper studio album, Kissland, in 2013. Kissland, which largely retread many of the same sonic textures and themes of his mixtapes, was immediately upon release seen as a major disappointment, both critically and commercially, failing to chart a single in America or significantly move the needle on The Weeknd's crossover success. This setback, though, proved the spark he needed to fully realize his ambitions. The Weeknd quickly shifted his approach, notably amping up his flirtations with radio by releasing a remix of Beyonce's Drunken Love, appearing on Ariana Grande's 2014 top 10 hit Love Me Harder, and opening for Justin Timberlake on the 2020 Experience World Tour. He also dropped the single Earned It the same year, a lilting waltz from the Fifty Shades of Grey soundtrack, which artfully tempered The Weeknd's sordid guise with an intoxicating pop hook, which eventually peaked at number three on the Hot 100. Earned It became the turning point in The Weeknd's pivot from internet providence to centrist pop star, setting the template for his breakthrough sophomore album, 2015's Beauty Behind the Madness, an album which cut the difference between his well-defined original sonic and thematic pretenses and more down-the-middle swings at funneling that edginess into music for minivans. The latter of these approaches is embodied by the record's biggest hit, the Max Martin-produced Can't Feel My Face, a song that turns The Weeknd's long-standing vocal allusions to Michael Jackson into an explicit homage, compares romantic lust to the rush of railing cocaine, and spent three weeks atop the Hot 100. Beauty Behind the Madness featured a string of massive hits, many of which toggled between Old Weekend, like the number one peaking dirge of the hills, and the new, more traditional Top 40-friendly Weekend, effectively retaining the lewd and dangerous persona which first made him compelling, but also cleverly modulating it for middle-of-the-road pop audiences. It was eventually certified double platinum in the U.S. and made The Weekend the mid-2010s most beloved pop bad guy. His 2016 follow-up, the aptly titled Starboy, saw him further embrace this central Skies by teaming up with Daft Punk on the chart-topping lead single Starboy, as well as on the lush, disco-nodding, number four peaking I Feel It Coming. Starboy also further expanded the boundaries of his aesthetic world, thanks largely to his ongoing collaboration with pop mastermind Martin, who helped bring elements of synth-pop, new wave, funk, and two-step under the weekend's umbrella. What both beauty and Starboy lacked in sonic cohesion, they made up for in shrewd prowess, creating a world in which the weekend could explore the friction between his trademark smutty nihilism and his desire for mainstream success, albeit in a way that often found those two approaches cordoned off from one another from one song to the next. Following the release of his 2018 EP, My Dear Melancholy, The Weeknd seemed to finally resolve that quarantine on his most successful endeavor yet, both critically and commercially, 2020's revelatory After Hours, an ethereal, almost psychedelic fantasia that runs the gamut from dream pop to 80s R&B to electro pop to new wave to yacht rock to drum and Base and felt like the culmination of everything The Weeknd had been working towards for the preceding decade. Edgy and open-hearted, sonically adventurous, and twinklingly hooky, all at once. The record spun off not just a series of the biggest hits of his career, like the chart toppers Heartless and Save Your Tears, but also one of the biggest songs of all time, period. The aha nodding juggernaut Blinding Lights, which eventually became the longest running Hot 100 single of all time by a solo artist and the most streamed song in the history of Spotify.
In 2021, The Weeknd, once defined by his utter rejection of the spotlight, headlined the Super Bowl halftime show, the most watched televised event of the year. Last year, he released his fifth studio album, the concept record Dawn FM, to widespread critical acclaim, and which featured the top five hit Take My Breath. The Weeknd has sold over 75 million records worldwide, and Blinding Lights was recently named the greatest Hot 100 single in Billboard history. He's had 17 top tens on the Hot 100 and six number ones. He's won four Grammy Awards, a Latin Grammy Award, 20 Billboard Music Awards, six American Music Awards, two MTV VMAs, and 17 Juno Awards. He's also been nominated for an Oscar and a Primetime Emmy Award. The Weeknd was listed as one of Time Magazine's most influential people in 2020. Here with me this week to chop it up about 21st century pop's greatest anti-hero is writer and producer Anupa Mystery. I am here with writer and producer Anupa Mystery. Anupa, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Hi, Louie, all the way from Toronto, home of the weekend. <laughs> I had to have a hometown hero. We need somebody that understands the culture of Toronto in order to fully unfurl the story of the weekend for us. Actually, my producing partner on the show, Russ, is also a local. A fellow Torontonian. He is, and he actually put something in the doc. He wanted to ask me to ask you to make sure that you provide some context on the culture of Parkdale in the peak of the hipster 2000s and how the local scene may have influenced the weekend style and approach. Wow. I don't know if I saw that note, but it's in my own notes. And I really want to talk about Queen Street West. So yeah. Those words mean nothing to me. So I'm hoping that you could provide some context on that. (laughs) Can do. We'll do my best anyway. Okay. Yeah. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. The Weekend is somebody that you've actually spent time with. I was rereading your profile of him in Pitchfork from 2015. And one thing that jumped out was in part of your introduction, you were in his apartment and you guys were just chit-chatting and he said something to you like, write good things about me. And then you follow that up by saying, this was not the weekend I expected. And this was in 2015, right after he had released his second studio album, Beauty Behind the Madness, which was a pivot away from the more avant-garde underground guys he had taken on in his music and persona and had pivoted towards mainstream pop, thanks in no small part to Max Martin and Can't Feel My Face. And it made me think, is the weekend's career as it's panned out what any of us, or maybe you in particular, expected when he first emerged on the internet or when you first discovered him? Like, is this how you thought things were going to go for him? No, absolutely not. I don't think (laughs) anyone did. I think there's actually a lot of interesting reasons for that. Some people would describe Toronto as the biggest small town that you might have ever been to. And you can hear it in Drake's music. He kind of has a crutch on his shoulder about making it in Toronto and needing to get out. And there is like an element of Toronto that has this sense of smallness, like what can you possibly achieve from here? And so I do think there is that sense of how did this kid from Scarborough which is a borough on the east side of Toronto, a very diverse borough. How did he become one of the biggest pop stars in the world? Mm. It's interesting looking back on the last 11 years that he's been out because you can see it if you look back. It's all there, right? Right. The mythology, the character building. He's actually, I think, quite consistent. But how would you have known based on that first mixtape that came out on YouTube that it would turn into the Super Bowl. Yeah. 
I'm intrigued and I want to unpack this a little bit with you, but he was such a product of a certain wave of internet Mm -hmm. discovery back in the days of like blogs and early (laughs) days of YouTube stuff. Tumblr. Tumblr, right. So he was an artist that I think people felt was... I don't want to peg it as too avant-garde. He always had a real pop sensibility to him and he always had a real gift with melody and that was always a driving force. Even in the early music, that's very present and obvious and it was fun going back through it this time and remembering that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. But did we see him as becoming the sort of centrist Max Martin collaborating pop icon, even when he did blow up, even when he did become the original version of the internet phenom, did you see him making that pivot into a Taylor Swiftian style centrist pop figure? Not that, not at all. I remember when Beauty Behind the Madness came out, I would have conversations with people around town who were just like, oh, I don't know about this. I like old weekend, you know? Yeah, right, right, of course. (laughs) You know, I think also, sure, we can talk about the internet culture that was going on at the time. And there was like a really interesting collision of musical worlds happening that feels very mainstream now, you know, Mm -hmm. there was this quote unquote hipster divide, and then there was the commercial pop realm. Right. But I also think the way he came up, people felt like a sense of ownership over their discovery of him. Yes, right. And I think that is a tension that needed to like unravel, which I think it obviously has now. I mean, it's been six, seven years of him being one of the biggest pop stars in the world. But I think people felt really protective. It felt like this little secret, you know? Yes. It'll be interesting to track with you because I think there's like two kind of superstructures that are important here. One is that pop music aesthetically kind of was remade in the image of him and Drake and Frank Ocean and all of these people that emerged in this moment, this sort of down-tempo, introspective, darker-toned take on R&B and hip-hop sounds is now the sort of center, or was at least for a long time, the kind of central organizing force of pop post The weekend. So he kind of remade pop in his image, even in some ways before he made the pivot into actual centrist pop stardom himself. Pop was kind of moving in that direction, thanks to people that were in his orbit, as I mentioned, like Drake, for instance. But the other thing that's been interesting to track over his career is the way on his big pop albums that he's attempted to reconcile his desires for centrist pop stardom and the sort of old weekend, right? When you're listening to Beauty Behind the Madness or you're listening to Starboy, you can really hear the two sides of him. It's like this interesting ping-ponging effect as you go through these songs of like, it's very obvious what the Max Martin songs are and it's very obvious what the songs are that he made with the original collaborators, whether they be Doc McKinney or Angela, whoever they are. Right. You can really hear them almost like split into A and B side albums. Whereas I think what's been fascinating and what was so fun about going back to an after hours and certainly listening to Don FM or whatever is he has found a way to kind of integrate those two sides of him over time in a way that feels much more fluid. And I think in a way he's in the peak of his artistry in that sense right now, even though I think Don FM has been, you know, not as huge of a commercial performer as some of his peak era albums have been. It was fun to watch him sort of struggle his way into a marriage of those two things through the discography. Yeah. I mean, one thing that kept coming up when I was listening to the music and thinking about this conversation is he's actually like become quite self-referential Yes, in terms of like melodies, in terms of themes. I think the narrative, I think definitely. Right. <laughs> there was kind of almost this, I mean, there was multiple moral panics, I think about the weekend early on. <laughs> 
I was having a moral panic, honestly, going back to some of the earlier stuff. I was like, ay, ay, ay. You know what's so interesting, though? I very early on was like, oh, this is like a character. Mm. So looking back on, let's take the drug use that he sings about, the drug and alcohol, drinking Alizé for breakfast and his brain melting <laughs> on House of Balloons. Yeah, yeah. Let's take that and then think about Don FM, which is this album about existential like projection of moving towards death. Mm -hmm. I think both of those things are like about distancing yourself from your deepest fears. And actually that's, what's really exciting to me about an album like Don FM, which Don FM is like the mature thing that I think people have been waiting for from the weekend for a really long time. Right. And it's also so interesting that we're kind of talking around or talking about this idea of him needing all of this time to like reconcile these two sides of himself, the old weekend and then the centrist pop part of who he is and I'm like he's like 32 <laughs> you know like he put his first music out in his late teens he's put out like nine albums or something like that if you were to count yeah like the first three mixtapes etc since 2011 which is 12 years ago when I look back and listen back to it all I'm like this is all excellent, you know, mm -hmm, personal mm -hmm. feelings aside about where it fits into like my own desires of what I want from the music. I'm like, yeah, all of this is really good <laughs> music. It's very strong. Oh, absolutely. I mean it more kind of in a delightful sense. Like it's fun to watch artists who do have competing impulses or what might be seen as competing impulses. Mm find a way to thread that needle for themselves. You think about I Am Sasha Fierce into like the later Beyonce records, you know what I mean? Where there was a period of time where she felt like she had to create two visions for what she could be. Right. And then a lot of her best music has come out of her kind of fighting to integrate those two sides of herself into something that has all of those sensibilities wrapped into one thing. I think great artists like The Weeknd, and I agree with you, even the music where those things feel pardoned off from each other. It's all still great. It's just, I guess it was so fun to me having listened to all the records in succession the way that I did in prepping for this was to get to an after hours and be like, okay, it's all here in every song. Everything you want in all of these different sides of him have found a way to like coexist with each other in a thrilling way. Yes. I think that speaks to his prowess as an artist. And I just want to add one more pin before we get into the nitty gritty here about the persona, which I completely agree is that. But I also think we would be sort of selling the weekend short to only take the Bacchanalian aspect of the drug use or the sort of misogyny in some of the ways that he speaks about women at face value, because one of the things that was also incredibly potent to me thinking about this music now and thinking about the persona is it's always laced with an immense amount of sadness and pain. It's very obvious from the jump, and I think that this is by design, that those impulses are there to like fill a void. And there's almost a desperation behind the desire for these excesses as a means of sort of running from or masking some sort of internal strife. And it's that tension that I think cuts what would otherwise be disgusting and something that would turn me off. Like the sort of way that those two things interface with each other is always so much on the surface and is cut by this incredibly sweet 
singing voice, which I think is the ultimate contrast that is what makes The Weeknd such a fascinating artist, is that when we first heard him, and I remember this from the early days, it was that contrast that I think was so interesting to people, because we'd heard plenty of rappers talk about plenty of the same things that The Weeknd was dealing with, but I don't think we had necessarily heard it in the context of this kind of Jacksonian, sweet (laughs) falsetto that he sings in. And I think that that's part of what made him such a thrill and continues to make him an interesting nexus point for hip-hop and R&B coming together in this specific way. Yeah, I think his falsetto singing voice is probably the central aesthetic tension in his music, right? Yes. It is such a contrast to some of the things that he is singing about. Yeah, exactly. Just some turns in them The only girls that we fuck with seem to have 20 different pills in them They tell us that they love us even though they want our next man and our next man's bitch want the third man Eddie Murphy shit I think it's really interesting, too, that on the cover of Don FM, and, you know, over the last few years, we've seen him embody this character on the cover of his records. Whereas, remember at the beginning, it was like, who is this person? There was no character. There was no visual. There was no avatar. There was nothing. Yeah. And so he's like this old man on the cover. And it's funny, you use that word, the void, right? And it's like, why do people talk about substance abuse when they're younger? It's like to fill a void, right? Mm-hmm. And death is kind of the ultimate void. True. And that's the theme that he's tackling on Don FM. And so it's interesting to kind of see him see himself as an old man right. on the cover of that in the context of those themes. Yeah. So I'm curious in kind of broad strokes, what is the weekend story? Where is he from? How does he grow up? What's his deal? So The weekend was born in Toronto and grew up in Scarborough, which is a borough suburb now amalgamated into the larger city of Toronto that's on the east side. Scarborough is a really interesting place because over like 50% of people who live there are foreign born. Mm. It's historically been a landing site for a lot of immigrants. And so It has this high density of diversity and you've got people from the Caribbean, from India, from the Philippines, there's a high percentage of Sri Lankan people and East African communities like the Somali community and of course the Ethiopian community, which is Abel's community or the weekend's community. Let me say, let me not talk about him like I know him. We can call him Abel. I feel like he's colloquially called Abel quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. So Abel was born to two Ethiopian parents grew up in Scarborough. And as the story goes, he dropped out of high school and then moved downtown into the city of Toronto proper into a neighborhood called Parkdale, which is actually two minutes that way for me. And Parkdale is on the west side of downtown. It's right on the lake. And Toronto has changed a lot over the last 10 years. Like in most big cities around the world, there's been rapid gentrification and displacement of working people. And Parkdale still kind of remains one of the last working poor neighborhoods in the city of Toronto. Mm. There's a high concentration of rooming houses, etc. All that to say, it's a good landing pad for people who drop out of high school or leave their parents' home and need a place to go with cheap rent and all the other accoutrements of that lifestyle. Right. At this time, one of the details that I think is really interesting is that he worked at American Apparel. I was reading this. Yeah, we can get into the 2000s era hipster signifiers. And I think working at American (laughs) Apparel is one of those. Absolutely. None of these stores exist anymore. (laughs) Yes. And also, I'm just thinking, 
thinking about those sort of like garish day glow advertisements that feel somehow in conversation with some of the weekend's musical aesthetic. Yeah, totally. The lore goes that his co-workers were listening to his music in the store, but they didn't know who he was. So this is a good place for us to talk just a little bit about Russ's question. Can you just speak a little bit more about what the hipster scene in Parkdale is like that he's surrounded by at this moment? Yeah, so Queen Street West is a street that runs from east to west across downtown Toronto. And Queen Street west of Dufferin is Parkdale. But straddling both sides of Dufferin Street on Queen Street is Queen Street West, where there's a shit ton of bars and there's like a lot of cool nightlife happening in the mid 2000s. There's a bar called The Social that a lot of the kind of mid 2000s electro acts used to come through at. And they had like these Monday night things where you could get $2 drinks. You know, there's a bar called The Beaconsfield and it's like metric and feist and broken social scene used to hang out there. would have been within walking distance or like a quick streetcar ride to like all of these spots. And I think also at this point in time, I kind of feel like the downtown Toronto nightlife was segregated. So there used to be a club district, which was further east, like a little bit closer to the financial district. And that's where you'd get like a lot of hip hop, R&B clubs, like late 90s, early 2000s dress code in playing kind of commercial hip hop and R&B. Right. And that part of town got dismantled. And so what happens is there's a lot of people, particularly people of color who are kind of left without places to go party. Meanwhile, there's this thriving other West End party scene, which I think having dabbled a bit myself, mm. I would have described as predominantly white. That has changed over time. But I think at the time when The weekend would have been encountering that, yeah, it would have been a bit of another world. Mm -hmm. Another side of what the nightlife experience would have been had you grew up in a predominantly black and brown neighborhood and would have been going out partying with your friends and musically different. Interesting. Who is The weekend listening to? Like if you had to sort of help us understand either by speculation or you've spoken to him, there's things we know. Who are The weekend's influences either from his childhood or during this period? What do you think he's absorbing that is going to form what is a very signature aesthetic? I mean, there's a very specific weekend vibe that's there straight from the beginning that's very singular to him. And I'm curious, is there anything we can pick out of either his childhood or this experience he has in this neighborhood that help us kind of understand where that fusion is arising from? I have my own thoughts about it, but I think what's interesting in thinking about this, aside from kind of like, oh, I grew up listening to Michael Jackson and R. Kelly and Ethiopian artists through his family, he hasn't really been so specific about his influences. However, I think you can both hear them and I think he's working with them. So I would definitely say he was probably listening to Daft Punk around this time. Yes. Future collaborators, <laughs> Daft Punk. Mm -hmm. A lot of the sound and the signifiers in his music veering towards new wave, mm -hmm. French house, disco, dream pop influence. It really reminds me of the universe of Ed Banger records. Right. You know, Justice. Those are the artists that would have been super big at that time in the mid to late 2000s, let's say. And so right. I think that sound 
does feel significant to like the music that he would go on to make and the specific types of people that he would work with. Again, Daft Punk, Gesaffelstein, they come from that world. It's interesting also in terms of the space that he initially occupies in the landscape because in a way he is towing the line between hip hop and R&B and emerging as some sort of what we used to think of as like an indie act or like a blog house act or like these sort of acts that in this period you were discovering on the internet and a lot of the acts we associate with that are, as you mentioned, largely white, perhaps rock or dance adjacent in a way. And so I think the sort of unique space that The Weeknd and Frank Ocean in particular sort of emerge into is a space that is bridging those two worlds together, right? The worlds of traditional hip-hop and R&B and then this indie aesthetic, this bloghouse aesthetic, exactly the world that a justice would have been in. What you're describing to me makes sense to me both in terms of like what we hear in The Weeknd's music, in terms of aesthetic touchstones, but also in terms of like helping to illustrate this sort of very singular late aughts, early 2010s sort of internet music discovery space. Definitely. I think it's really important actually to remind people of that. The way that it filters into Dua Lipa can put out a whole remix record with Moody Man and the Black Madonna yeah. and all of these artists on it. And it's fine, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, no one really bats an eye in the same way that the moment I always think about is Solange taking Jay-Z and Beyonce to the Grizzly Bear show. <laughs> of course. Anupa, the amazing amount of times that that moment has come up on this podcast, I swear to God, it's like literally that was like the big bang moment of pop history over the last 15 years. Yeah. And then she <laughs> covers the dirty projectors over like Bumpy's Lament, which has been sampled by Erica Vadu and Dr. Dre. It's a whole nexus. I think it speaks to what we were getting at earlier in the conversation is that The weekend and his continued success and fusion of these aesthetics into massive pop stardom have been one of the reasons that we now view these things as interconnected. This was a time where things still felt siphoned off into these different worlds that now feel like they've all kind of collapsed into each other to the point where you have artists like Charlie XCX and Carly Rae Jepsen who like seem like they should be centrist, massive billboard charting pop superstars that are operating as indie artists right, and exactly. don't really have that kind of success. And then you have artists like The Weeknd who seem like in another universe, they are sort of underground, kind of cool, off the beaten path sort of artists who are stadium stomping superstars. So That's these right. worlds have all collapsed into one another in this weird way. And what that led us to is PBR and B. I didn't want to say the fucking word. We have to talk about it though, right? <laughs> okay, let's talk about it. Let's put it out there. <laughs> as much as like people want to redact it from the historical record, I think it's like important to talk about. It's gone the way of the metrosexual well, somewhere. <laughs> I think what it does, and I'm developing my four-pronged thesis about the weekend as we're having this conversation, but I think PBRMB is one of multiple things that indicates that people were having a reaction to the weekend. Right. PBRMB is more indicative of the audience than it is of the music or of what The weekend was doing, as far as I'm concerned. Explain what that is for people. Well, PBR&B was 
a little cute pun portmanteau thing coined by this writer, Eric Harvey, who ended up writing a piece in Pitchfork about how he tweeted a joke as one used to do on Twitter. I don't think people do that on Twitter anymore, right? Everything's so <laughs> fucking serious on there. But PBRMB is a fusion of RMB and the abbreviation for Pab's Blue Ribbon, which mm-hmm. once again, we're talking about all of these mid 2000s aesthetic troves. Pab's Blue Ribbon was like the cheap beer that the hipsters in Williamsburg and Portland drank. Right. When they were listening to TV on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no shots to TV on the radio. I love TV on the radio. Nor to Paps Blue Ribbon. Yeah, more shots to Paps Blue Ribbon. <laughs> so that was also, I think, the rise of alt R&B or indie R&B, right? You could probably use those terms interchangeably. We don't have to take PBR&B the most seriously for this conversation, but I think it's worth mentioning it. But I think like, let's just talk about the idea of indie R&B or alt R&B more generally. I think what that indicates is a shift in the perception of the R&B star in terms of race. And so all of a sudden you're getting like white acts being called R&B who weren't necessarily building on I think any sonic signifiers of the genre, but we're kind of making smoothed out like dream pop. And then also there's R&B, which was another kind of made up term to like, I guess, get rid of the term race music that originally existed, right? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. When I listen to the weekend's music now, I don't think of him as an R&B musician. I think of him as a pop musician. Yeah, And I think R&B also has this kind of racial connotation to it. Mm -hmm. And so PB R&B or indie R&B, to me, the way I see it is it was a rise of the white audience kind of turfing a bit on this world of artists who are kind of products of the internet and just like listening to music on blogs and making the music that they wanted to make. But I think it was also a racial signifier for sure. It's reactive. Let's talk next about how we see everything we're talking about in The weekend's early music. So as you were getting at, he sort of begins somewhat secretively to start to upload a series of songs to YouTube, namely What You Need, Loft Music, The Morning. What are these songs like? What do they sound like? How do they present The weekend and his persona to us in this early phase? What do they sound like? They sound like DIY, YouTube-y, kind of grimy, Mm -hmm. really like insular. And I say insular in the sense of world building. I very much see House of Balloons, which is the first mixtape. Songs like Loft Music and What You Need, et cetera, they're on House of Balloons. Mm -hmm. I really see that album as creating a world. And that's where you get the weekend of Don FM has always been present since House of Balloons. He knows that there is a world that he wants to conjure. And these songs are about partying in this part of town and getting by with not a lot of money and the women who they are hanging out with and the drugs that they're doing and the times of day that they're doing these drugs, which is like all hours. It's very much like a young kid just living a pretty hedonistic lifestyle. While also there's this self-awareness on a song like What You Need. It's like, 
a veiled drug metaphor, but also an allegory for a relationship Mm -hmm. and addictiveness. And so there is this self-awareness that I think that we're getting in the music. And it's beautiful. He's got a beautiful voice. Loft Music Still is one of my favorite songs. I think that's the song with the Beach House sample on it. Yep. And it's gorgeous. There's like these soft, angelic voices. He's also doing this rapping flow thing that I think he still carries through to this day, and which I think was still kind of new at that time. Or like, not new, like I, I wouldn't want to say that he innovated it, but... No, I think that's fair. I mean, it's not new in the sense that he's inventing it, but there's definitely something coming together here between him and a series of other artists where those two things are sort of unifying into one thing. Whereas in past versions of hip-hop and R&B, those two things, again, were very siphoned off. If we're thinking of The weekend as this artist to help break down some of these barriers in a mainstream context, mm-hmm. think about the R&B and hip-hop of the 2000s and the way that it was the rapper and the singer and the rapper and the singer and the singer and the rapper. And yeah. there was always kind of a separation between those two things. He was certainly part of a movement that was saying these can all exist under one persona. So it's in conversation, I think, with contemporary R&B while also sampling Cocteau Twins. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Susie Sue. And yeah. what's really important to note about House of Balloons is it comes out in this kind of mysterious, veiled way on YouTube and no one knows who he is. And we've never seen a photo of him. Like at that point, no one knew what he looked like. That was the whole narrative. Who is this like mysterious artist, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Which was remarkable at that time, just as like a marketing tactic, but also we're talking about the rise of Instagram at that time. So everyone can see everyone. And all of a sudden we couldn't see this person. Yes. So there's this like shadowy DIY veneer around this project, but also one of the producers on the project is Doc McKinney. Right. Who at that point was already an extremely accomplished producer. Yeah. And I think that that contributes to Hesse Balloons actually being a more complete project than people probably realized. It wasn't just this, I recorded in my bedroom and I just uploaded it, which we'd seen. Right. Doc McKinney is known for Astero, which was a project he did with a singer in the 90s, a Canadian project actually. Mm-hmm. which came out of the world of trip hop. Mm -hmm. That's also where you get some of that trip hop influence in The weekend's music. You know, this is someone who knows what he's doing. Another producer who The weekend would continue to work with and who's part of the crew at this time is Elangelo as well. Yes. House of Balloons actually kind of contains a lot of elements of The weekend's music that carries with him to this day. That's so important. And two things that I kind of want to build off of based on what you were saying are, I think a critical aspect to The weekend's music is his great taste in production. Throughout all of it, whether we're talking about these foundational producers that help form his sound, or even when you're talking about him getting to a Max Martin or Daft Punk or whatever, no matter what 
adventures he takes in his musical aesthetic, his taste level for production feels like absolutely key. There's not a single song in this discography that isn't an A-plus production. Every single one of them, no matter what styles he's traversing or attempting to sort of unify or bring together on these projects, that really stood out to me listening to that. And that is 100% clear on House of Balloons. And I think you're so right. The world-building aspect of that is so key and linked to the production because in some ways, the weekend's themes can become redundant over time. I mean, he hits a lot of the same ideas over and over again, which in this early phase was still fascinating and dynamic. I think we can talk a little bit on later projects whether some of it got a little bit worn out. But I think the way that he's able to present it in these different aesthetic guises or the context of these incredibly thoughtful and innovative and lush, also sometimes kind of spare productions is one of the keys to the weekend's continued success and a key to his aesthetic identity. And the other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking is this idea that he was not present physically, we couldn't see him, but there is such a strong sense of the layers of his persona just through listening to the music. I was thinking about a song like Wicked Games, which I think is one of like the most notable or well-known songs from this project. I always love the lyric, bring your love, baby, I can bring my shame, bring the drum. I can bring the pain. Bring your love, baby. I can bring my shame. Bring the drugs, baby. I can bring my pain. I got my heart right here. I got my scars right here. A thesis statement for so much of what the weekend's persona is, which is this kind of Bacchanalian excess laced with this underbelly of sort of pain or discomfort or foulness or there's an abrasion mixed with a sweetness and there's a sadness mixed with euphoria and there's kind of all of these contrasting elements that he's able to sort of render through his voice and through like simple but economical lyrical flourishes that he has on this record too. Yeah, that's the self-awareness I think that has always been there and we talked a little bit about the moral panic with regards to the drugs and the misogyny in his music, looking back on it, it feels very clear that he's always played a bit of a character. And so I think I have a different relationship to understanding how he presents that information now than I would have just being purely reactive in the moment 11 years ago. But I also think that that self-awareness, specifically with respect to the misogyny, is kind of interesting because the women in his music are like equally as kind of depraved. You know what I mean? Yes, 100%. He's never setting himself (laughs) up like a Drake, like he's like the moral figure in relation to any of these people. He is depraved. Everyone around him is fucked up on drugs. They're all being bad to each other and they're all looking for things in each other. And he's the narrator and he's the protagonist. And yes, he's a man and he's a product of his environment. We can be real about that. But I think it's always been a bit more nuanced, but it's been really easy to react in that way to his sweet boy singing about bitches. You know, like you're like, oh my God. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's what I remember being such the gripping aspect of this music from the beginning was just, oh, this is a contrast that I haven't really heard before. I think it's fascinating also to think about the way that on a later mixtape, so he puts out House of Balloons. That's the first of a trilogy of mixtapes that ultimately becomes known as Trilogy. And on one of the latter ones, I think the last one, he covers Dirty Diana by Michael Jackson. (laughs) 
which is, I think, a fascinating sort of idea as an origin story for him, because I think that song represents Michael Jackson at his most paranoid, at his most disturbing, I guess, in a sense. I've been here times before, I was too blind to see that you seduce every man this time you won't seduce me. And in a way to sort of think about the way that him hearing Michael's sweet falsetto singing about this dark, paranoid fantasy of being stalked and women as this predatory force that are attempting to take him down and all of these things being some sort of point of birth or inspiration for The weekend's character is such a fascinating connection that he's like drawing explicitly in this music too. I think you can look back on his music and kind of the stories that he's told and the evolving character that he continues to play. And it's reflection of someone who has kind of a sophisticated understanding of art and that art is not a mirror or hashtag representation of our life. It shows us the gray areas of everything. Yes. This thing has come up and I'm sure we'll talk about it more. The weekend being a bit of like an anti-hero, right? Him being like a bit of a villain or whatever. Even just the cover of After Hours where he's got the bloody face, right? Yeah, right, 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 right. He looks like a villain. I think there's something so beautiful about making sweet sounding, but also kind of demented and tormented sounding pop music, like stadium banger pop music about the darkness of humanity. And modernity is weird and we're in a time of drugs and excess. The weekend reflects that element of it. But I think the darkness, that's the core of what it means to be a human being as well. It's beautiful. I completely agree. And I also think it's fascinating to think of that or him as the anti-hero or him as exposing the underbelly of this world happening in contrast to sort of the peak of the EDM pop boom happening above him, right? In this moment, Katy Perry and LMFAO and David Guetta and Calvin Harris and all of these super bright, simplistic ideas of drug and party culture that are operating here on the surface. And I think... What I want to ask you about now is what the commercial trajectory or sort of the dissemination of The weekend into a popular artist is through this early work, through these early mixtapes, and through his emergence on the internet and whatever embrace the kind of blog culture was giving to him at this point. But I think it's fascinating to think of him as counter-programming or sort of adding layers of depth to a culture that was dominating the mainstream, but perhaps he was creating an avenue for people that might be interested in something else or another kind of perspective on that than what we were getting kind of at the top line level of pop at this moment. Yeah. So how did The Weeknd go from working at American Apparel and uploading this music to YouTube to becoming kind of the talk of the blogosphere through this music? Yeah. So I think this music generates buzz. I would imagine Pitchfork would have been the number one. Oh yeah. <laughs> they reviewed every single one of these mixtapes <laughs> when it came out. I went back and read them all. Yeah. And Pitchfork, again, we're talking about mid to late 2000s, aesthetic signifiers, PBR, Williamsburg, TV on the radio, Pitchfork, right? Right. And so Pitchfork is also like part of how that pbr narrative comes to pass. And the mystique has a lot to do with it. The other thing I think that's kind of important is that Frank Ocean Nostalgia Ultra comes out in February 2011. And House of Balloons kind of emerges around, let's say, March, I think, of 2011. Yeah. So I think these two unexpected, sophisticated, aesthetically provocative, R&B seeming, but kind of indie projects coming out at the same time, 
I would be curious if had House of Balloons just come out, what the trajectory or what the interest would have been had Nostalgia Ultra not come out and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they did something together. I think they kind of made people feel like we're in a moment, you know? Yes, and I think I would add to that Thank Me Later coming out in 2010 and Drake starting to mainstream some of these aesthetics. Again, in contrast to the Katy Perrys of the world that were currently dominating mainstream pop at this moment. Right, yes. What am I afraid of? This is supposed to be what dreams are made of. But people out had a ton of hang with. Always look at me and say the same shit. You promise me you will never change. So then speaking of Drake, no one knows who The Weeknd is. And then July 2011, he plays his first show at a club called The Mod Club here in Toronto, which still exists, but is a different name. So I was at that show. I was at The Weeknd's very first show. No kidding. Yeah, I was there. And the place was fucking crawling. Oh my God. It was summer in Toronto, which is its own beautiful thing. And I probably would have hopped off the streetcar and cross the street and there would have been people just lined up all the way around, people trying to get in, people trying to get tickets inside. Everyone's packed in. The club has two levels. And so rumor has it that Diddy and all of these people from New York are like upstairs on the top of Drake's up there. You know, everyone's here for the weekend's first show. Yeah, And it was pretty electric. I remember the atmosphere so clearly. And Mm -hmm. in contrast to how electric it was, what I remember is how shy, (laughs) how shy he seemed. That's sweet. (laughs) It's very sweet. And that sweetness is so interesting given what people had been listening to for months at that point on the (laughs) mixtape. Which also adds to the idea of the character. I mean, it kind of buttresses everything that you were laying out before as this being some sort of grand character exploration of some sort, not necessarily the real person underneath it all necessarily. Yeah, it's so interesting because there definitely is autobiographical elements of his music, but it also feels very character driven. Totally, totally. And yes, seeing him be like a bit timid and do these awkward spins, which he does now. That's what's so interesting, right? Why is he spinning like he's Michael Jackson holding the microphone in 2011? And oh, because like that's what he wanted to be. <laughs> right, right. But it was so funny because it seems like he hadn't fully admitted that to himself at this point. Yeah. And the music didn't necessarily signify that either. So he does these two back-to-back shows. They're amazing, right? Like I hear with my music critic lens on it, it's like, oh, like not as strong a performance as maybe one might right. want. But yeah. at that point, I think he'd done like a few shows for like colleges around Toronto and the greater Toronto area. You know, this is a different time also for a musician, right? This is the beginning of artists not gigging constantly. This is the beginning of artists going from their bedroom to like Barclays Center. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so it made sense that he kind of didn't know what he's doing. And then a week later, he plays OVO Fest. Right. Which I think all of this attention, all of this going from anonymous on YouTube to like these big splashy shows, OVO Fest, which was still kind of on the rise and definitely something that people were really paying attention to, which was starting to become a destination for people outside of Toronto. That all contributes to 
the craze, I think, around him. And it yeah. felt very much like a craze, you know? Absolutely. Then, of course, I remember Crew Love, which I feel like was like another huge moment in his career when he got a big featured slot on Drake's massive second record in 2011 as well, right? That was right around this moment. Yeah, so Take Care came out at the end of 2011, I think November of 2011, and The Weeknd has a few writing credits on it, but his big moment on it is Crew Love. Yeah, Take Care was the album I feel like that really launched Drake into the stratosphere, and like there's The Weeknd with a prime slot, and I was like, okay, Drake is king-making this guy. Not just featuring The Weeknd, but co-written by The Weeknd, etc. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that some of The weekend's greatest bars are on Crew Love. <laughs> when he rhymes Poland with Poland three times. Rakim was shaking. Truly iconic. You know, sometimes I'll like go on Twitter and search Weekend Poland and there's all these Polish people who just love the fact that he was shouting out Poland. And at this point, how does the XO sort of label thing come together? How does he get a record deal? I know that that was a whole thing too. Well, from my understanding, it's that first show in July at the Mod Club, everyone and their mom is there. People flew in. He's probably courting people at that time or labels are courting him around that time. I'm assuming Drake and OVO were also courting him around that time. He links up with these two guys, Sal and Cash, who form his management team. And then they form XO. He then signs his own label deal with Republic Records. Does not sign with Drake. We've mentioned multiple times, but like the seeds of everything The weekend is now being there from the beginning. And I think forming XO is a part of that. And Crew Love, I guess, speaks to this. There's this cabal of local artists that are clipped up as OVO or whatever. And Abel goes and decides not to be a part of that. And he's forming his own thing called XO. And I think it's about him knowing early on that he had his own kind of sonic identity and he knew where he wanted to go as an artist. Right. And that OVO probably would not have been able to contain him. I mean, Drake is always going to be the biggest artist on OVO. Sorry, party next yeah. door. We love you. But it's just kind of always what it's going to be. And I think whether it was The weekend himself or his management team, someone had the savvy to say, you know, if you want something bigger, you're going to have to like go and forge your own thing, which I think in a town like Toronto is not a small thing. Getting put on by OVO is like a real look to a lot of people and can be quite meaningful. And so to take that risk and say, hey, you know, I want to go off and do my own thing. I think it speaks to the foresight that was always there from Mm -hmm. the very beginning about where the weekend wanted to go with his music. Hey everyone, are you liking this episode? Are you enjoying what you're hearing here? Well, I think you might need to join Pop Pantheon All Access. That is our new Patreon channel where for just five bucks a month at the icon tier, you'll get access to at least one bonus episode a month where we're talking about new music. This week, we did a whole new episode talking about new stuff from Lana Del Rey, from Megan Trainor, Paramore, Kim Petras, and so many more of your favorite artists. We recently published an in-depth 
in-depth review of SZA's SOS featuring Pop Pantheon fave Owen Myers. And other Pop Pantheon guests of choice have shown up on album deep dives like Rolling Stone's Britney Spanos on Taylor Swift's Reputation, Pop Psychology's Rich Jezwiak on Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope, and Dunzo's Troy Bikini on Britney Spears' Blackout. And we have so many more of those episodes to come. And we're also providing access to our Discord channel, guest list for my party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, and so many other amazing perks. So head over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode or in our bios on social media and become an icon tier subscriber today. So he starts EXO, he has the major label deal, and he releases his debut record, Kissland, which I think is a really interesting reflection of like where The weekend was at this time and some of the conflicting ambitions that we've been talking about maybe not being fully rectified within himself at this point. So how would you describe what's happening on Kissland? And is it expanding in meaningful ways what was happening on the mixtapes? And if so, how? And does it give us insight into how his ambitions are expanding or growing at this moment? Kissland is probably my least listened to weekend. Yes. I think many might agree. (laughs) (laughs) And I was listening back to it like, oh, it's going to redeem itself for me. And it just didn't really do that. Right. Again, as we've said, none of this is bad music. No. It's that thing where you're always holding it up to. I mean, at that point, you would have been holding it up to House of Balloons. Now you're probably holding up to House of Balloons and After Hours. And I think production-wise, like it tried to be ambitious. But it didn't meet that goal. It didn't thematically, lyrically say anything new. Right. And at that point, like if you wanted to get a sense of who The Weeknd is as an artist, you would have been better off listening to House of Balloons. Yes. If you listen back, the music doesn't sound out of place in his discography at all. I think it just lacks a certain kind of immediacy. A song like Belong to the World, I think, is quite indicative of that. Right. I really like Wanderlust, yes. which I think feels like a precursor to After Hours, but it's so funny because Wanderlust coming out at that time would have felt so incongruent to like the party demon weekend that we would have known. Right. It's like, what is this peppy, upbeat, disco-y, happy song? is this artist it would have sounded conflicting in that moment and i think kissland felt in conflict with who we yeah understood the weekend to be as an artist i felt like he wanted the mainstream pop success on some deeper level but hadn't quite figured out how to let go of whatever shame he had around that at that moment or sort of like the idea that he was this critical darling this cool kid's favorite new internet phenomenon and so (laughs) he didn't fully want to let enough of that go to go for max martin at that particular moment so a lot of the music as you said feels kind of like re 
retready to me. Like, okay, we've heard this done better in the literal 35 songs he'd released on those mixtapes in the previous years. But I also thought Wanderlust is really the one song that feels like it's pointing in the direction that he's going to. Like, I kind of felt like that's the song he sent to Max Martin or something. That was a song where he was like, this is where I want to go because you've got, as you said, that chugging 80s dance beat, that disco feel to it. It actually reminds me of a Don FM song when I was listening to it. I was like, this reminds me of that sound completely. But what you're also not getting on Kissland is the relationships aren't there yet. Max Mm. Martin isn't there yet. As far as I know, I don't think he'd met him yet. Doc McKinney, I I believe Doc isn't on Kissland. Kissland is an album in transition. You know, if we're going to say like one nice thing about it, it's that it was, I think, the first significant step forward in him being really clear that he has this very cinematic view and perspective on his music. Yes. I was reading an interview where he described it as a horror movie. Mm -hmm. When I interviewed him, he was talking about Christopher Nolan. You know, he's always had this kind of noir, surreal taste in film. And I think that is probably Kissland and the lightness and romanticism of a phrase like Kissland being used as a tag for something he describes as a horror movie. So there you're getting that tension between the sweet and the scary, right? So this record kind of lands with a thud, more or less. I mean, that's the thing that I think is so fascinating about this record is there's all of this hype around him. Everyone's so excited for him to kind of make the leap into this next Mm -hmm. echelon. And this record underperforms, kind of critically not well-received, kind of seen as like a bit of a come down, I think, from the hype that had been surrounding him at this point. The other thing that I think is really missing here is part of what Max Martin helps him unpack. And I think, I mean, who knows what the role was of Max and what his inspirations were for those songs. But there's something about when The weekend realizes that pairing the kind of louche sleaze with the brightness of up-tempo, new wave pop sensibilities from the 1980s, that combination Mm. together is what allows for, I think, a more dynamic, widely appealing sound to emerge for him. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so fascinating thinking that this dark persona allows that to all click in a mainstream sense is kind of the inspiration of Michael Jackson, Depeche Mode, Peter Gabe. Talking heads. He then obviously gets the message that something has to shift here or maybe it just sinks in for him that I actually do want to be a centrist A-list pop star and how am I going to do that because he clearly radically changes his approach entering this second record which is Beauty Behind the Madness. Yeah, so we don't know the inner workings of the mechanics of how it all happened. But I will say he has talked about linking with Max Martin through Ariana Grande, who he collaborated with on Love Me Harder. Which felt like a huge moment. I mean, that was a big moment where he was clearly making a concession to be like, I want to be collaborating with mainstream poppers. I want to be on the radio. I want to be heard by these mainstream audiences. How can I translate my pretty out there in terms of mainstream pop radio at this particular moment anyway aesthetics into something that is consumable by moms in their minivans, essentially? Yeah, and Ariana was a different artist then too, right? Ariana was very much a sweetheart artist still in that moment. Nickelodeon kid. Yes, exactly. Again, speaking to that commercial indie world divide, it felt stark, right? Right. So there's that element. And then one of the things that I always think about that he told me... so 
on Beauty Behind the Madness, he has a collaboration with Kanye West. Yeah. And he talks about how working with Kanye, Kanye was the one who really pushed him to think about the scope of who he is as an artist and being bigger. And, you know, it tracks like whatever your feelings about Kanye in 2023 are, right? Sure, Kanye sure, sure. has always been that artist who was like, I'm bigger than just a rapper. Yes, I'm more right. than this. And I think that really left an impression on the weekend. My sense from speaking to him was that that push to be like, you don't have to be this kind of artist. You can be something bigger. I think that must have really had an impact on the weekend. And Kanye as a great example of a mainstream pop artist who never, at least in his peak era, felt like he was sacrificing his cred, which right. I wonder if that was like a difficult thing for the weekend to grapple with at this particular moment. Yeah. Like, how do I maintain the cred, but also cross over, you know? Yeah. And who also was like reverse crossing over because I think that was around the right. era of my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, which Pitchfork loved. Yeah. So yeah, maybe there's all these overlapping intersections things. I think as an artist to artist moment, as kind of a generational torch passing moment, I think I always found that quite beautiful and encouraging as like a symbol of where the weekend was going to go. And that's where he went. <laughs> right. It seems like almost a parallel moment to Kanye making stronger or something. Mm. You know what I mean? So I can see why the weekend would look at Kanye and by extension Drake, who I think carried the torch from Kanye in this way of bridging these worlds together in a way that didn't feel like selling out, mm. which I think is probably something that was on Abel's mind at this time. I want the mainstream success, but I don't necessarily want to seem like I'm selling out. I mean, his whole thing was about the edge of his work. You know what I mean? Like, how do I translate that into something radio consumable in that way? I'm curious if it was selling out. Because like, you know, he's talked about being homeless and I imagine he didn't necessarily come from like a super wealthy background. And so I don't know if he would have necessarily had any qualms about selling out mm. so much as maintaining his artistic edge, which I do agree with. I think he probably was like, yeah, let's go get this money. However, I also think, and like one thing that we're missing in the transition here is he was hesitant to show his face early on. I think there's probably also a bit of fearfulness around what it means to expose yourself in that way. He still doesn't like to do interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think of perhaps Kissland being this moment that was like, you're not going to be able to do exactly what you're we're doing on mm. the mixtape and have the level of success that you want. Something is going to have to shift here. Yeah. You know what I mean? In an aesthetic sense. Yeah. Something's going to have to shift aesthetically and something's also going to have to shift in terms of perception. And are you ready for that? Yeah, right, right, right. The other thing we should put a pin in, of course, is Earned It, the song oh, yes. from the uh, Fifty Shades of Grey soundtrack, which becomes his first real solo crossover hit. Mm -hmm. How does that song maybe present a vision for The weekend fusing who he was and like where he wants to go in terms of the scope of his sound? How does he effectively create a big blockbuster movie soundtrack song that still feels true to him on Earned It? I don't know. Does it feel true to... I'm like, this is the character mm. now, right? Like, this is the suave lover man side of him rearing his head. And Fifty Shades is like milk toast erotica for like foreign yeah. housewives <laughs> or whatever. Who is like the most transgressive seeming pop star in the moment who you could attach right. to the soundtrack. And I guess The weekend was it. But this song is really beautiful. I remember in the moment kind of hating it. Mm -hmm. It felt very Starbucks core. Yeah, right. Which speaks to the problem we're talking about here with what The weekend is trying to do. How do you translate this edgy, mm. foul persona <laughs> into something palatable for Starbucks? That is a difficult conundrum. It's an interesting thing to pull off. Well, 
you write a love song where the bad boy is actually the boy singing about how much he loves you and <laughs> how much you're worth it and you deserve it. Screw you, perfect. You're always worth it. And you deserve it. The way you work it. And you also place it in the context of this lush orchestral waltz. Yeah, (laughs) so I really like that song. In the moment, I think I probably hated it because of all that it represented. But I think listening back on it, I think it's quite a beautiful song. Spacious. I love the way his voice sounds in there in the mix of those kind of spaces. And that's interesting contrast to like how claustrophobic and insular some of that early music sounded. Absolutely. And a different element of his character, right? Like the soft side, Mm -hmm. right? The bad boy really does love me. Yeah, but still pretty misogynistic too. The idea of you earned it is in and of itself. Like, you know, an interesting take on love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not to be whatever gender studies. <laughs> and then how does all of this love me harder, earned it, set the table for the approach to Beauty Behind the Madness? How would you describe how he takes the weekend thing and morphs it into all of these different guises and textures on this mainstream breakthrough record? I think earned it and Love Me Harder are these two very apparent bids for a mainstream narrative. A song on the Fifty Shades of Grey soundtrack and a collaboration with Ariana Grande. Those are media moments being created. Absolutely. And then you listen to Beauty Behind the Madness and so Can't Feel My Face is the big song. It's the first big Max Martin single. I think it leans into the Michael Jackson comparisons. He debuts it at an Apple event, we should also say. Talk about a media moment. And the other thing he does with that song is writes a freaking kids bop primed hooky <laughs> pop song about cocaine right she told me don't worry about it she told me don't worry no more we both know we can't go without it she told me you'll never be in love The impact of that song was kind of wild in the context of who The Weeknd had been up until that point. And then you're getting like moms listening to that freaking the fuck out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's actually brilliant for that reason because it does everything that we were talking about. It takes the edgy persona that he's developed on these earlier records and then just places it in this container that allows like a soccer mom to be into it. But yet he can still kind of go, but I'm still singing about... Game. It's a really neat trick in that way. It's the Trojan horse. Yeah, that's really his first moment in finding success in doing that. I think really what it is that people loved about that early music is it felt transgressive. Yes. And it felt like it was narrating the darker side of life. And he was an antihero and he's speaking to the grays of yeah. what it means to be a young person today. And I think he finally finds a way to take all of that narrative, but then put it into this package that allows him to also like achieve his sonic potential Mm -hmm. and where he wants to go as a musician with a really good ear for good music. Yeah. 
I have to say, I love the combination of Max and The Weeknd. I think it's been revelatory for both artists. Yeah. And it opens up so many possibilities for both of them because the thing is, what Max doesn't have is edge. Max traditionally right. completely lacks edge. It's all just complete sugar rush centrism. And The Weeknd mm-hmm. brings the edge. And so together, it's that contrast. The Weeknd is edgy without needing to try that hard. I think that's maybe what this song illustrates to me more than anything. He can sand down talking about the explicitness of the drug use, the explicitness of some of the sexual content of the earlier music. And he still comes across as dangerous, even in the context mm-hmm. of a song that you could play at a wedding or a bar mitzvah or whatever. Totally. And I think this song is the kind of epiphany moment for him in his pop ambitions is I am still me and I'm still the edgiest pop star working today, even if I'm singing this Max Martin song. That's inherent totally. to me. I don't need to lay it out so explicitly at every moment. But I think what's interesting about the rest of this record is I do think this is such a strange comparison to draw that I just rock with me for a second. Similarly, in the way that like Red functioned for Taylor Swift as half the album felt like she was trying to pivot into this mainstream pop oriented by utilizing Max Martin to great effect. And the other half of it felt like she was still trying to keep her toe back in like what she was doing before. I feel like this record is very similar in that sense. You're listening to it and you could hear in a song like Can't Feel My Face, certainly in the other Big Max Martin song on this album, which is In the Night, yet another kind of Michael Jackson referencing. Billie Jean meets The Way You Make Me Feel, cascading synthesizers and... Chugging. Chugging. But then you have songs like the other big lead hit, The Hills. And then you also have songs like Often and Acquainted or whatever that feel very much in conversation with what he was doing prior, perhaps with a slightly more glistening pop sheen over the top of them. I 1000% agree. This album does feel half and half. Yeah. So there's this tension of the old weekend and the new weekend, but I think also another tension that feels apparent around this time is an attempt, let's say, to hold on to the quote-unquote urban audience. Right, right. While also slipping into like the pop world. And I think that's what this album does really well. Like the Hills is a banger. Banger. And also, I'm sorry, the lyric <laughs> when I'm fucked up, that's the real me is oh the God. best lyric of the 2010s. Yeah. That punched me in the gut when I listened to that yeah. this time. I was like, Jesus Christ. That is a great example of how the weekend's persona is rendered on wax in ways that it's a few words, but you're just like, whoa, there's a lot going on there. And I think your point about balancing the urban and the mainstream thing is interesting in the context of the time we're talking about, because those worlds are fully collapsing, partially because of The weekend. right at this moment. I mean, Absolutely. we're about to be in an era mere years later where a song like Bad and Bougie can just hit number one without needing mm-hmm. to really make a ton of pop concessions or Black Beatles or whatever these songs are that are going to cross over. What's interesting is that he still feels maybe these impulses to separate these things, but I think he's going to soon realize or pop is going to morph in a way that these things aren't even things that are separate anymore. I mean, by the time you get to 2016, 2017, 2018, there's not a ton of separation between what we might have considered traditional rap 
hip hop, urban, quote unquote, music and mainstream pop. Like there isn't that big Mm -hmm. of a difference. And 2015 is the moment where that's beginning to transition, I think. But the fascinating part about this that illustrates my point here is The Hills is as big of a fucking hit as Can't Feel My Face is, which is one of the most fascinating commercial aspects of this album is that the song that gestures most clearly back towards the old weekend, quote unquote, the kind of songs that didn't really pop off from Kissland a couple of years later are now able to cross over and be number one hits in the same way that Can't Feel My Face is. A song that literally says, when I'm fucked up, it's the real me as the hook, is as successful as the Max Martin Diddy Bop. (laughs) That's interesting. And yet they're related. I mean, he can't feel his face and that's when he's the most realist of himself. (laughs) He says, I can't feel my face, but I love it. You know, he loves it. Yeah, they're not worlds apart. I think like that's where he's super successful with this album is in articulating that larger thesis. I'm the anti-hero of pop music. Right. I can be in these worlds. I can be the old me. I can be the new me. I can do it all. Here's what I feel about this album. I kind of like almost every song at least. Yeah and love many of them. But what it doesn't have that the early work was so magical is the sort of cohesive, well-constructed track listing that allowed you to get absorbed into this world. That's something he really didn't get back in touch with until After Hours. This record and the one that follows it up, Starboy, the next year, which I think we can talk about kind of in tandem here because it feels like they're a pair in a certain sense, are records that feel like they're attempting to sort of forego the idea of some sort of cohesion in terms of creating a album and are more like... Like, how many different things can we try to put the weekend thing onto, essentially? That's what these records feel like their goal is. Yeah, they're kind of tandem in the sense that I think they do the opposite thing, right? Like, Beauty Behind the Madness feels like, okay, here's a bunch of tracks with varying sounds and themes that we think sound really good with this artist. And that's why Beauty Behind the Madness is super successful. And then Starboy feels more musically uneven. Yes. But I think it's the beginning of the movie poster album album cover. You know what I mean? This character that he's playing and trying to bring back that house of balloons. I am a character and I am telling this larger story. So it's trying to do a visually cohesive thing. I think Starboy and Beauty Behind the Madness is just like, all right, here's a bunch of tracks that go super hard. Right. I think Starboy is more uneven in terms of there's less great songs on it, but there's still a lot of interesting sort of recontextualizations of the weekend that feel pertinent to moving forward. You've got electro punk dance songs like False Alarm. That's a fascinating thing we had never really heard before. And then we get so many great Proto Max Martin weekend songs like Rockin', this kind of two step. I love that song. Oh my God, I think that's one of the best Max and weekend songs. Yeah. You don't have to spend your life with me. You don't have to waste your energy. We can just be rockin'. Yeah, we can just be rockin'. Yeah, I just want to. It was really fun on some of the Starboy songs to hear all the different ways the weekend could start working because it contrasts with the sonic cohesion of the early work. These records feel like a revelation, not because they're great albums necessarily, but because, oh, The weekend like really works well in a lot of these different sonic modes. The two-step of Rockin', the Tears for Fears, New Wave of Secrets, which I absolutely love. Oh, 
obviously he slams home a couple more like MJ nodding tracks, like a lonely night, mm-hmm. for instance. And then I think one of the problems with Starboy is that the ones that gesture directly back at the old music start to feel really rote to me. Mm. Party monster to me. I'm like, I don't need this song. This is the moment where I feel like he had made the pivot enough and it had been effective enough and he had found a path forward that we sort of didn't need him to be recreating sounds of the past in a specific way. Yeah. And I also want to point out the conflict is rendered in particular on the song Reminder, where he seems to be specifically addressing that he doesn't want to be perceived as a sellout. I mean, it brings back the idea that I was bringing up earlier. He says something, I just want an award from a kid's show singing a song about coming off a face full of blow. I ain't no kid's <laughs> choice. I ain't no blah, blah, blah. Right. So there's obviously this conflict inside of him about <laughs> the notion that he's sold out. I mean, I think that there is this feeling like, I'm still cool. I'm still the guy you thought I was. The song is literally called Reminder. Like he wants to remind you of that. So I do think that conflict is still brewing somewhere in the mix during these records. I just won a new award for a kid show. Talking about a face coming off a bag of blow. I'm like, goddamn bitch, I am not a teen choice. Goddamn bitch, I am not a bleach boy. And maybe the conflict comes also on the producer side of things because this album is the return of Doc McKinney. Yes. And also Max is here and there's more Swedes, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, the Swedes are here. <laughs> the Swedes are here. Diplo's here. Yeah. And so you have this person, I think, who's instrumental in helping the weekend craft a sound. And now he's got these other collaborators. Yeah. It feels like competing teams of people who have two different visions for what's going on here on some level. Definitely. Yeah. But I think the most important collaborators that we need to bring up are Daft Punk, who come in and produce the two canonical singles from this record, one of which is the title track, which I think is a fine weekend single. I think Starboy is amazing. Yeah, no, that song is good. The only reason I'm even giving it a little short trift is I feel like I Feel It Coming is a revelation in the sense that it is the first and to that point, definitely only weekend song that feels hopeful, optimistic, high key. It actually shifts Mm. the persona in a way that no matter what sonic guys he steps into through all of these albums and through all of the mixtapes, there's a real solid perspective of this guy that addresses similar themes over and over and over again from different angles. The persona is very clear and the perspective is always consistent. Whether he's sliding into a Max Martin song, you still get like, I'm a sleazeball. I'm out here having Bacchanelli in excess because I'm I'm running from like a deep pain and all the stuff that we've laid out about him, whether that's in Can't Feel My Face, it's in Wicked Games, it's in every version of him, it's in Secrets, it's in Rocket, whatever. This is the first song that feels cute or something. The sweetness of the voice comes out in the persona. I mean, it's literally a song about true romance, about meeting someone right. and <laughs> feeling like you're falling in love with them. And it's really that simple. Just a simple touch and it set you free. You don't have to rush when you're alone with me. I feel it coming. I feel it coming, babe. I feel it coming. 
And I think that makes this song one of the standouts for me of this mid-period of his work because you're just like, okay, here's him reaching for something entirely different. And it's so good. It's so much better than every single song on Random Access Memories. I just want to make sure that I state that before we come out here. I think this is, in terms of Daft Punk's disco revival, this to me is the crown jewel of the entire thing. So I just absolutely love this song. Well, to your point about the weekend's strength and his influences, like we can talk about this kind of generational influences. But as you said, he brings out the best in his collaborators too. He does something else for Max. He's doing something else for Daft Punk here. I think he brings something out of One O Chick's Point Never, which we can get to a little bit as well. So yeah. I take your point with, I feel it coming. I think what you're getting in the optimism, there is a little bit more of the optimism that we feel more acutely on Don FM. Yes, for sure. You don't have to rush when you're alone with me, he says. I mean, that is such a cute, sweet (laughs) sentiment. He would never have said that on House of Balloons. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. That is a revelation. You don't have to rush when you're alone with me. I mean, what is this, Greece? It's sweet. (laughs) That is so sweet. All right. So he puts these two records out. We have massive hits from both of them. Can't Feel My Face, The Hills, In the Night, Starboy, I Feel it coming, earned it. How is he positioned in the pop landscape following this 2016, 2017? I think people were like, what the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) I just don't think people expected it. Here's also something that I think we can talk about too, which is that one thing I think is so fascinating about The weekend is he's got a bit of like an old school performer thing to He doesn't dance. Right. As I said, when I saw him in that first... Doing his twirls. He's kind of doing the same thing right. a little bit. He's just kind of shuffling back and forth with his mic. He's definitely got the confidence and yes. kind of the ability to really sell it now for sure. Right. But he doesn't do a lot. I think maybe that also comes from his influences as well, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Michael Jackson could dance, but... Yeah, Michael Jackson knew how to cut a rug idea. Say. Yes. But like that <laughs> 80s guy holding a mic, two stepping a little bit on the stage, yeah. with a blazer with no tie. It's a specific kind of male pop star, yacht rocky trope he like embodies. And his music, even though it's changing the landscape of pop, no one is making music like The Weeknd. No, that's true. It's incongruous as well with what is happening in terms of the sound of music. And so I think that's why it's a what the fuck for everyone because he's not doing, he's not participating in pop stardom in the same, how he shows up, how he does his press, right? the day-to-day of it all. That kind of speaks to people loving him as the anti-hero of pop. Exactly. Yeah, right. He's living into that. And then aesthetically and musically, he's really got a very specific 70s, 80s motif that he's working with and executing, I think, and pulling off in like a really contemporary, smart way Mm -hmm. that for a lot of other people just come across as sounding retro. Yeah. I think it's interesting too to think about the state of mainstream male pop stardom at this moment. Pop in the 2010s to me felt very female-oriented, mainstream pop, right? Like you think of the big stars of this moment and the people that your mind quickly goes to are like Gaga, Katie, Beyonce, Beyonce. Rihanna, Bieber being one of the only other sort of functioning major male pop stars of this exact moment. But Bieber obviously comes from an entirely different background 
background from the weekend and has a whole other patina over him. So there's really a huge space for an artist that feels kind of edgy and feels like he was organically discovered and all of these things. I guess you could say that about Bieber too, actually, interestingly, parallel. They're also both Canadian. There are some interesting parallels here. But I feel like there was this kind of wide open space for Pop's bad boy. There wasn't really anybody there that he was sort of competing with at this exact moment, it doesn't seem. I would definitely agree with that. I think maybe what it makes me think of is that, and maybe this is partially his influence, is that male pop stardom. And I use the word pop in the most inclusive sense to include the Biebers and the Drakes and the Ty Dolla Signs of the world. Drake. So, I mean, I think Drake is probably the biggest male pop star of the moment at this particular time. Right. Who still probably would have been, and to many, is still classified as like a rapper, you know? Exactly. There is a move to like a more auteur sensibility with the male pop star. And I think The weekend definitely embodies that. Do you feel like as we move through these pop records, was there any sort of backlash in the fan community ultimately to this stuff from the original crew? I don't know if there was like an official backlash. I know anecdotally, there's a lot of people who weren't with it, who don't get it, who are like, this is like a teeny bop artist Mm -hmm, now. mm -hmm. Maybe haven't taken the time to listen to the music or maybe have listened to the music and they just don't get it. Because as we've said, really up until after hours, he's still figuring out the balance. So I think even my own appreciation for everything pre-after hours, while I enjoyed a lot of it, I think it came once I could see the grand vision entirely. I completely agree. After hours made everything in retrospect make sense in this weird way. It just made it all make sense. And it was like, and now I see what he was working towards. And you could see glimpses of that. That's what kept his fan base going, like the brilliance of it. He'd have these beautiful pop moments and you'd be open to it. I mean, I know I was compelled by the idea that the same person who did Wicked Games would do a song like Earned It or Can't Feel My Face or whatever. I was like, this is kind of Mm -hmm. cool. But for a lot of people, that's not necessarily the case. For sure. And I'm interested about all of that in the context of My Dear Melancholy, which is kind of the stopgap EP. Because the thing is here that The Mm. weekend, after releasing these records in two quick succession in 2015 and 2016, doesn't come back with his official next record until 2020. There's a big gap in time here. The only stopgap is this EP, My Dear Melancholy, which I really hadn't spent that much time listening to. I went back and listened to it this time. What does this tell us as a sort of small hint about what's going on in The weekend's sort of journey to synthesizing all of these things together that will kind of come to full fruition on After Hours. Like, how do you relate to this EP? This is someone who's relatively young as an artist, even now. He's in his early 30s and he's put out a shit ton of music in the last 12 years. And also, as we've discussed, there's been a lot of very deliberate experimenting that's going on on a really grand scale with the music that he's making. And so I think My Dear Melancholy, when I listen to it now, it just plays kind of experimental. Mm -hmm. Like he's just trying a few things things. It doesn't have the grand narrative. It doesn't have the cinematic vision of the movie poster front cover like Starboy and After Hours and Dawn FM. But he's got some ideas in here. And I think especially when it comes to dance music, which I think is where we start to see even more of a pivot, like in After Hours. Yes. But then there's also some old stuff too, right? Like Call Out My Name feels like a burned it B-side. Literally. I'm really interested also in what you pointed out earlier, and I think this is a good launching off point for us to talk about After Hours, which is the idea of pop stardom shifting into this 
idea of world building and auteur statements over traditional hit music chasing that I think has really gone on and come to full fruition in an artist like Billie Eilish, for instance, somebody that can make really idiosyncratic music and still be like the biggest pop star in the world. I feel like The weekend, especially as he moves into this latter period where he's able to fuse his pop instincts and all of it together into this one whole, I think he's a really pivotal artist in this movement. I feel like The Weeknd had, as we mentioned from the beginning, such a clear worldview that has been borne out through all of his work and such a clear kind of sonic identity that even when he shifts into 80s dance pop or he's making Max Martin, Michael Jackson nodding songs or whatever it is, or he's gesturing at electro punk or two-step or whatever these things are, the overarching sonic and aesthetic thrust of the weekend is always the main important thing that permeates all of this music. And I don't know if I'd ever really put this together, but I do think there's a series of artists that feel like really important linchpins in that shift. Because right now, it almost feels like we're in a moment of pop music where having a traditional Max Martin-y hit single feels like the least important part of having a pop career or a successful pop career. Billie Eilish, I think, is just someone that just constantly comes to mind for me is she makes weird songs. Even Bad Guy is not like a traditional, like that's not a song you're coming up with with Max Martin mm-hmm. necessarily, right? But yet she can be the biggest cult star in the world. I feel like The weekend, his whole story from his emergence on the internet to this sort of feeling that people had discovered him to this world building sonic universe represents a really important linchpin in that sort of transition in mainstream pop. I feel like it's a lot harder to specifically pinpoint who The weekend has influenced sonically. Like it is there in the landscape and the merging and the blending. Mm-hmm of things, but it's not like, oh, this person makes music that sounds exactly like The Weeknd. Right. To me, I think The Weeknd's big contributions that feel a little more obvious are that aesthetic, visual, thematic Mm -hmm. treatment of his music. Early on, it was like the Tumblr aesthetic. I think even now, people like positioning themselves as like reticent or whatever. Right. The idea of mystery as like a marketing peg, I think really took off with The Weeknd, which is really interesting because I don't know if it was intentional. I think he just was like, I'm shy and I don't want to do this. Every great pop idea begins as an instinctual move by a smart pop star and then just gets turned into like a marketing move. That's what happens every single time. Yeah. And it felt incongruent, I suppose, in a time when, as I said earlier, Instagram is on the rise and social media, the branding of the average person. And here's a person who's like, I don't want to be seen, but I want to be the biggest thing in the world. Right. Yeah. So... The Weeknd released what many might consider his biggest and best album. I mean, at least Mm. to me, I feel that way about it in 2020, right in the dawning days of the coronavirus pandemic. So we've gestured numerous times in this conversation already about After Hours being some sort of revelatory moment where all of everything that he's been working for comes together. How would you describe this record? How does he achieve that? What is happening here that allows this all to be an apex moment for his artistry? He nails the sound and he nails the character development. That's just what it is. Those are the two big pillars of who The weekend is as an artist. I think on After Hours, it all comes right. together. And then sonically, mm. the signifiers, they're all there. Blinding Lights is a huge freaking song. And over time, there have been all these references to like kind of new wave 80s references and ideas in his music. And you listen to Blinding Lights and you're like, am I listening to Take On Me? <laughs> like... With 
such a darker edge than the original has, you know what I mean? Yes, I mean, it's that beginning piece, but that mental association just takes it to like a whole other place. You're talking about another one of the biggest songs in the world, iconic, enduring sound. Yes. And he's able to take that and put it into something else. in your eyes, he puts a sax solo on there, right? Like Careless whisper, <laughs> I kept thinking to myself. Right. I love In Your Eyes so fucking much. My notes literally just say, this song is fucking everything. Yeah. I mean, listen, I love a sax solo. I'm never going to say no to a sax solo. No. Also, in speaking about our sort of indie rock references from earlier, I kept thinking M83, Midnight City, when I listened to this song. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, this is another Max Martin vehicle. Max has got his fingerprints all over this one. But so is One O Tricks Point Never, who's like a newer collaborator. On After Hours, he's like, okay, I got Max. And then I got this indie electronic kind of autorish producer yeah. who no one would expect to be a collaborator on my record. Right. And he's here and I'm bringing these two things together. This album goes back to creating a really well-constructed track listing that works as something you want to consume. The tracks kind of seg into each other yes. in the way that Starboy and Beauty Behind the Madness always felt like they were separated out. None of these songs feel as though they don't belong with one another. And even when he's working with Max on songs like Blinding Lights or In Your Eyes, like the obvious big pop bangers or Save Your Tears, of oh. course, another like huge, amazing hit from this. It doesn't feel the same way to me that Can't Feel My Face did. I love Can't Feel My Face, right? Like, I'm never going to say a bad word about it. But there was a feeling of tempering, right? There was a feeling of, here's how I put myself into a sort of Max Martin song. These songs feel much more like there's no concessions being made here. They are all fluidly working together as one idea, and that Abel is proud of what he's doing on all of this stuff. I think that's another element of this. There's no longer any sort of shame about making these grand pop gestures that I sometimes feel like maybe undergirded some of the past ideas. There's none of the edge that he sings about on Reminder about, guys, I don't really think I should be making this pop song. Like, I'm still the guy that I was. There's something unapologetic about the grand pop gestures of this album that I feel like are part of what make them so joyous. Because mm -hmm. he's so joyous in singing them. I mean, you think about a song like Hardest to Love, there's also a maturity and evolution in the persona. That break beat. Oh, my God. God, yeah. there's not enough amazing things I can say about Hardest to Love. It's also kind of in the extension of I Feel It Coming, 
is that tender side of his persona that starts to blossom here, like an add texture to some of the more loose, dour, lascivious Bacchanalian aspects that we've been talking about. I mean, this whole song is about essentially admitting I'm not easy to be with. I'm not somebody that's made things easy for us in terms of being together. And I think that that is another level of self-awareness, not just about, yeah, I'm partying and I'm aware that's fucked up and I'm aware of blah, blah, blah. This is like literally like a level of care for another person that I don't think we've necessarily seen rendered this fully on his songs before. Yeah, it's care for another person and it's bringing you into like that interior world. I mean, I toggle between what my favorite song is on this album all the time. Yeah. Today, it's After Hours because I fucking killed it at the gym (laughs) when After Hours came on my playlist today. That song is so good. That opening line, thought I almost died in my dream Mm -hmm. again, and he's talking to a Mm -hmm. lover, and now you're getting anti-hero weekend in this moment of intimacy. Yes. Waking up and being like, this is what's happening inside of my mind, and he's talking to someone about it. Thought I almost died. And the build on that song is crazy. It's like two minutes before it really hits. Oh my God, it's so gratifying. also kind of unusual in this moment that he as a songwriter can really build that tension for that amount of time and then not just build the tension but then give you the payoff after hours is an amazing song yes there's something less callous I think in the persona here and more open-hearted that I think just comes with maturity. And I think that's part of why this record feels like the most whole and the most sheerly enjoyable and fluid version of the House of Balloons post-trilogy weekend, because it's got so many of the dynamics that he's been building towards in his persona, and then in terms of the way that he kind of pairs the sadness and the misery with these exuberant, shimmering productions Mm -hmm. is just fully realized here for the first time. I cannot say enough good things about this record. This album has only gotten better and better for me over time. It was a thrill to listen to it this time. It's so fucking good. Uncut Gems came out in 2019, so I do wonder if he was able to get some of his cinematic rock off slash learn some things Mm -hmm. in terms of his involvement in that film and being a character who plays himself, which I imagine probably functions as a bit of catharsis, right? Like here I am, I'm being kind of preserved in history and this moment of in time is being documented in this really meta way in this movie. And the Safdie brothers and the whole tone of that film, I think speaks to like all of his filmic references. That's why lyrically I'm always a little bit uh, on him because he's got these beautiful self-aware moments, but then he's got the Poland moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to go down as the moment from this episode is you and your obsession with the Poland moment. (laughs) I do wonder if there's like some element of cohesion that came from his experience starting to like dip his toes into the film world, which we know he's like really going for now because he's got this HBO show coming out. Yeah. You can totally see what a weekend film would look like easily. 
easily, like without him ever having made one himself, you could 100% see what that would be like. Exactly. And so I do think that maybe that is an element, I think, of this record that also made it successful. There was some simultaneous learning process that was going on that allowed him to like Mm. create the character. And visually, I think this album was really interesting too. Wasn't this the album with the puffy face? Yes. Yeah. I know. I know there's the bloody face and then there's the puffy face. (laughs) And then there's the old face, but the puffy face was like such a weird moment. That's the other thing, like the weekend is traditionally quite handsome too. I think this is another thing we haven't hit on, but he does enjoy turning himself into something slightly grotesque on these album covers. Once again, (laughs) I think he doesn't really want to be seen and he doesn't want to be known. And I think all of this allows him to take up space publicly and like get his rocks off in that pop star, rock star way, but keeping a barrier between him and himself. Yeah. And then of course you have the surrealness of him doing the Super Bowl the next year and you're just like, okay, in spite of yourself or because of yourself, you are the biggest pop star in the fucking world. Who gets to do the Super Bowl? Like almost nobody. You have to be a big, big, big deal to be able to pull that slot off by yourself. And there he was. I mean, as you mentioned at the top of our conversation, a surreal moment for where this whole project began to see someone that was literally hiding and wouldn't show his face to be performing on the biggest stage in music as the centrist pop icon that he has become is an amazing reflection of his own ambition and his own talent and also an incredible reflection of the way that I think pop stardom has been remade in his image in many Mm -hmm. ways, like in the ways that we've talked about in this world building sense and in the way that people don't want their pop stars to capitulate as much as we used to make them do to achieve mainstream success. Like we actually want to go along with them in more interesting ways down their idiosyncratic rabbit holes than I think has been true in the past. And I think that he really represents that. And that's a phenomenon that the internet has fostered, et cetera, et cetera. So- (laughs) Maybe to land us here, I don't want to spend so much time on Don FM because we've talked about it a lot on the show already, but he releases this record last year, Don FM, that feels almost like a pet project or something that was less aimed necessarily maybe at being the sort of massive success of a lot of like his last few records have been and felt more like something that he just wanted to do, like an art project of sorts. Where do you see The weekend's career going from here? Do you think he's going to continue to sort of trot towards this world conquering pop aesthetic? Or do you think that Don FM points to a future where he's going to be trying to do even more sort of pet projecty, interesting, rabbit holey kind of work moving forward. Where do you see that? It's really hard to see where he's going to go next because I think there's something even to the themes of Don FM, how it's a concept album about sitting in traffic in a tunnel and the tunnel's like <laughs> a purgatory, like, <laughs> and death is on the other side. Yeah. There's lots of themes related to the afterlife. And on the cover, he's an old guy. Yes. Are we going to rebirth after? After this? It feels like a pivot. I feel like we're in some sort of transitional moment where he's like conquered pop and what is next, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even though Take My Breath should have been a number one smash in every country worldwide. What a fucking banger. Take my Take my breath 
for all these years, I was like, man, there's like something going on. I know he was a fan of Justice. Yeah. And Take My Breath feels so much like a Justice song. It just goes to like such a strange place. And I was like, oh, there it is. Well, it's everything that we've talked about. It's Justice, but it's also Donna Summer, I Feel Love. And it's Michael Jackson. And it's all of those late 70s, early 80s references too. He's gotten so good at warping that into one thing. It's all those things. The one take I'll offer on Don FM is I thought it was really interesting that there was this whole narrative around the return of dance music with regards to the Beyonce and Drake albums. And I was like, you know, The weekend has been doing that and doing it in like, I think a very sophisticated way that does speak to not just the aesthetic trappings of dance music, but the place and time of dance music and the way that yes. Black artists who were making disco was being borrowed by like French artists who were making house music. His music speaks to like dance music as a living thing somehow. I feel that on Don FM. I agree. And I think he adds something that like Dua Lipa, for instance, like we'll never be able to do, which is he brings the sleaze. He brings the edge. Someone like Dua Lipa can make disco songs. I mean, I love her. I'm like a fan like anybody else's. But like part of what makes disco so thrilling is the brightness and all of the lush orchestrations and all of that kind of stuff. But it's also kind of sleazy and there's an underbelly to it that going out at night is fun and exuberant, but it's also like dark shit can happen. And that's part of the fun of it. And The weekend is a great representative of that culture just without needing to try. He just embodies that. And I think that's what makes him such an effective dance artist in that way. Yeah, he's in the music and he's in the place where the music is being made. It's very interesting. All right, so where do you think The weekend falls in the pop pantheon? I think he's solidly tier two megastar. Yeah. Very solidly tier two. I was reading through the thing and I was like, yeah. And then the last point about could plausibly headline the Super Bowl. Well, he did that. So I think he's solidly tier two. My thing is, I feel very comfortable saying this. I think The weekend is an artist that we're going to look back on in 40 years and be like, he was a genius of his time. Right, and like super influential. And I think... He's tier one in progress also. (laughs) Woo! I don't know if you've ever had anyone saying that. Are you kidding me? Literally, Anuva, everybody comes on there and people try to fight me saying BTS is tier one. I mean, like, you know what I'm saying. People really (laughs) want to fight for their faves here. Tier one in progress, it's soft, you know? I used to think he was more tier three, but I feel like at this point you could be right. Let me just like run through these really quickly. Highly relevant, producing at least 15 genuine hit songs over a decade, many of which are still highly recognizable to audiences that did not grow up with him. How many like bona fide weekend hits are going down in history? What do we have? 10 of them? Yeah. I think we do have that. Could be referred to anonymously. Yes. One musical era that shifted or defined a certain period of pop. Absolutely. I think there's been a couple of them. Generation defining for sure. Yes. If the movie of millennials were to be made, the weekend is the soundtrack. I agree. Yes. Successful reinvention, musical image overhaul. Yes. I think definitely the pop transition qualifies. Multimedia moments that define an era. I think his lack of multimedia presence kind of like... That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. He's 
toward stadium, so that's done. Mm -hmm. Legacy is largely set in stone. I think that's one question I have is we're so still in the thick of it that it can be hard to know. I think this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that I think people still feel a bit flabbergasted by the weekend and they don't know what to make of him. And I don't think people are thinking about him as an artist with a legacy because he's still so much in progress. We're still in the peak of his thing. I agree. It's so weird. He's one of the biggest artists in the world. He's got such a crazy fan base, but I don't know if there's a lot that gets at how sophisticated his music is. I agree. And I think that is where the gap in understanding or thinking about his legacy would come into play where people are just not there yet. Here's a question for you. If The Weeknd never released another song again, do you still think he'd be in tier two? Yes, because he would definitely be able to launch a successful Vegas residency. Just looking at your next (laughs) point. He's already played the Super Bowl. Yeah, I think so. I think he would stay tier two because I think the contributions that he's made, unless he goes down some horrible road of needing to be erased from pop music history, I think he stands as a tier two. Do you think he makes sense next to Gaga, Janet, perhaps, Justin Bieber, that kind of echelon of stars? Definitely. I think the part that's really difficult for him is that media reticence and the ways that he doesn't take up space as a public personality. I think that Mm -hmm. makes it harder to evaluate some of the more visual representational shifts that you would associate with some of the other artists that are on the list here, right? Right, right, right. He is a bit of a cipher in that way. And so I think about that idea of the reinvention of the musical image and the image overhaul. I'm like, yeah, he's kind of got these characters, but I'm like, if he's always playing a character, how do you think about an image overhaul? Well, I think it would come in the music. We've talked about some of the gestures towards this. If he released a record that was more in the vein of fully in the hardest to love, Mm -hmm. I feel it coming, where you felt like he was able to morph the persona into some sort of other thing. And I think he's proved to be a sonic chameleon, even while retaining his essence. So I take those as reinventions. I mean, I take Can't Feel My Face as a reinvention. I think that he qualifies in his own ways. It's not like he's Madonna, where there's a huge 360 degree reinvention with every record we expect from Madonna and Madonna-esque pop stardom. Yeah. I think he qualifies in his own way for that. And I think that's what makes him an incongruous pop star, right? He's not playing in these representational shifts that a lot of other pop stars do with all their different albums in their different eras or whatever. Right. There is an evolution and growth and change, but there's like deep consistency. Listening back to all this stuff, it's consistent. Yeah. He's been someone that's making hits and someone that we've been talking about now for nearly 12, 13 years, right at this point. So I'll take it. Tier one in progress. Okay. So (laughs) last question for you, Anupa. What is an underrated weekend song? Something that we haven't spent time on in this conversation yet that we could send the podcast out on. Okay. Well, I did kind of refer to it earlier, but I didn't want to like talk about it because I wanted to share it now. And I don't want to put anyone in their Kanye West feelings, but it is Tell Your Friends from Beauty Behind the Madness. I think it's a wonderful song that has such a classic sound and it's got that rapper backstory. Mm -hmm. This is where I came from. Mythology building. The mythology building. That's it. So yeah, tell your friends. I love this song too. And I also think it was one of the moments where we started to see the weekend being able to operate in different sonic guises through which we did a lot on Beauty Behind the Madness. So I really enjoy this song as well. Love that style of Kanye production. Miss it so much. Right. And I like this song a lot too. All right. So a new mystery. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Go tell your friends about it. Go tell your friends about it. About it. Go tell them what you know, what you see, how I roll.
All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon, The Weekend. A cuspy 3-2, but I think ultimately, I guess, a tier 2 superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much again to the fabulous Anupa Mystery for being such an amazing guest. Thank you so much to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week, and to PJ Brunetti for helping me edit this episode. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Twitter and Instagram. Check out the Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes of the episode. Go to poppantheonpod.com to check out our merch, our hat, our t-shirt. Subscribe to our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes for bonus content, access to our Discord, and so many more perks. And until I see you guys next week, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Driving by the streets I used to walk through When I had no crib, I guess you thought I should have been Go tell your friends about, about it Go tell your friends